Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. So last week was an awesome introduction and overview of the, to the book, the gospel according to Mark. We're going to dive into the text, just the first eight verses tonight. Um, but I wanted to start, I came across this article, article and I, I wanted to read it to you. It's, it's short, uh, it's sad, it's, it's a sad story, but I, I wanted to read it because I think it illustrates something uh, pretty vividly. It, it's, the title of the article is this, Hoarder Dies When House Collapses from Oliver's Stuff. A Connecticut woman who police describe as an apparent hoarder was found dead Saturday, this is back in 2014, after the first floor of her house collapsed under the weight of Oliver Clutter. Police went to Beverly Mitchell's home on Friday after a mail carrier said she hadn't picked up her mail in almost two weeks. They found that the first floor had collapsed into the basement because of the weight of all the clutter in the house. The contents of the room caved in on top of her, Sergeant Kevin O'Donnell said, adding that local police had to call in backup and equipment from the Connecticut Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security in order to continue the search. Mitchell's body was finally found with the help of a cadaver dog on Saturday, but searchers had to cut into the side of the house in order to get in. What a sad and tragic story. And uh, I tell it because I, I was trying to illustrate even in my own mind this picture of what it means to have an unrepentant heart. And the, the, the main point of our text tonight as we move through and we, we meet John the Baptist as we see John the Baptist plays such a pivotal role in human history, in, in, in redemptive history, in getting to be the herald for Christ, to, to proclaim that the king of kings is coming, and he, he's telling us, and he, he was telling everyone then and everyone since, prepare. Prepare the way for the Lord, and his message, the way that we prepare to meet Jesus, is through repentance. It's through repentance, and, and it just, this picture was so illustrative, this poor woman who held so tightly to her stuff, held so tightly to what she thought brought her security or peace or some sense of happiness or identity, and it was, it was false, and, and she needed to let go of it. She needed to remove it, but she wouldn't. She held on to it until finally the weight of it literally crushed her, and I thought, man, that's such a picture of the unrepentant heart, the, the sin that we will hold on to because we love it, even though we know it's destructive. And, then the, and the, the picture is this, that yeah, if, if we don't repent, if we don't let go, if we don't confess that and move on from it, it will crush us. And, and it's such, a, such a picture of when John comes on the scene and he's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And let go, let go of what's holding you and keeping you from Christ. So, Mark chapter 1, start in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, If the Roy Jr. leave? Good. All right. I forgot to dismiss him. They're out of here. Good. All of the Old Testament was building up to this point. Everything. From from the beginning, right? Like the, the first promise given to us in Scripture that the Lord is going to send the one who the serpent would strike, but would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. From that moment, every, all the promises of the Old Testament, all the prophecies of Israel, all the types and the illustrations and the shadows, like all of that was building up to this moment and builds behind this one final prophet, John the Baptist. This awesome character who comes on the scene and, and the way that Mark is telling the gospel and the way he's emphasizing the story, you know, he, he's not like John where he lays out this theological introduction to who Christ is and letting us know, yeah, that Jesus is God right out of the shoot. Like, and it's not like Luke and Matthew where they introduce with genealogy and the birth narratives. Like he wants to come right here and he's like, this is the beginning. This is the beginning. This is the good news on display. The King of Kings has come. Like our Savior has come. The Messiah is here. And that begins with John, who stands at this point in human history between Old and New Testament. He represents in a unique way all the prophets that have come before him. And Jesus, man, Jesus said of John, he said, there's there's no one better. There's no one better. Of, of all the humans born of women, he's the best. And, like, and John, I think, I think for me, when I think about John the Baptist, I've got two images in my head that aren't super helpful. Um, one I've got, uh, I grew up, the, the, there was Jesus of Nazareth was a movie that was put out, uh, I mean, it's like in the 70s, and, and I, I still love it. I've got a special place for it just because I grew up watching it, but it, it's a very, like, everything's very stoic. It's very intense. And the guy that played John the Baptist, I mean, he was so intense. He was, as a kid, he's, he's terrifying. And he had a British accent, so I already didn't like him. And just kidding, just kidding. I love the British. And, uh, but it's just, he was very intense. And, like, I remember especially the scene between him and, and Herod. And if you know John's story, he ends up getting arrested and thrown in a dungeon and ultimately beheaded because Herod had gone into an adulterous, incestuous relationship with his brother's wife. And, and John, I believe, like, 
out of love is, is calling him out. He, he's, he's saying, you, that's, that's not lawful. You can't do that. But, of course, the movie, it was like, I mean, he is just fire and brimstone screaming at them as they go by on a, on a litter. And, and so I have that intense, like, wild preacher image in my head. And the other image of John the Baptist that I have is from a lot of the early sermons I heard, especially at the, the Christian university I went to, that portrayed him more like Captain Caveman. <laughs> if you remember the old cartoon, like just wild man, like with a club in his hand, eating bugs and, you know, like grabbing, a, you know, honeycombs out of trees, like just this crazy wild character. And it's like, okay, who was this guy? who had such a unique role in human history and that Jesus said, there's no one better than him. No, no one's been more faithful. This guy who is so single-minded in his devotion to the Lord and the, the call of God on his life. That's intense. He's an intense guy. So it says this. This is the beginning. And everything's been building up to it. And Mark says, as it is written, right, that this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the glad tiding that, that Yahweh's salvation is about to be put on display. What all of human history has been building up to, now's the moment, here it comes, and it's the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus, right? That Jesus, the name Joshua, that, he's, that Yahweh is salvation, that he's here, that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, listen to this, this is from Hendrickson's commentary. He said, Jesus was, by the Holy Spirit, anointed. He's the Messiah. That is, that he's ordained or set apart or commissioned and qualified to be the prophet, the priest, and the king of kings in order to carry out the task of saving his people to the glory of the triune God. That the Messiah's coming, that he's here, that, he, that this king is, is the Son of God, that He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, that He's God in the flesh come to save us. And He says, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord or of Yahweh, making His paths straight. So He, he says, He's quoting Isaiah, and He does the second part of that quotation is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The first part of the quotation is actually from Malachi. It's Malachi 3, uh, 1, and that was common. Uh, you see this a lot with the New Testament. When they quote the Old Testament, they'll just quote whoever the, the major, or, you know, in a cheap way of saying it is like the more important prophet, they would quote him, um, give him credit. Sometimes that messes with people like, okay, it says Isaiah, but Malachi, and I think, okay, time out. Of all the societies in the history of the world, we have no right to judge anybody on how they cite their work. <laughs> I don't know if any of you went to college or even high school, but, I mean, you remember citing the work? What in the world? Spend all the time doing the research and the study, and you write it, and then you fix all the grammar, or so you think, and then you spend just as much time citing it, we've got no room to judge Mark. He's saying, listen, this is, this is what the prophets were all building to, and he quotes Malachi, and he quotes Isaiah, 
and, and the picture here, wh- what he's quoting from is the initial fulfillment of this in the prophet's time was that the children of Israel were in captivity to Babylon and God was going to bring them out. He was going to lead them out of captivity and bring them back to the promised land. And what he's saying is, yeah, so prepare the way of the Lord. Like Yahweh is going to lead you out of that captivity and bring you back home. And that was the, the initial fulfillment of this. And what Mark's saying is, no, but the ultimate fulfillment of what the prophets are saying is, I mean, Jesus has come to bring us out of our captivity. The Messiah is coming and is now here, and he's going to bring us out of a greater captivity than what Israel had in Babylon. He's saying, so prepare the way, prepare the way. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, symbolically pictures the approach of Yahweh for the purpose of leading the procession of Jews who will be returning joyfully to their homeland after long years of captivity. This shows that the deliverance granted to the Jews when, in the latter part of the 6th century B.C. and afterward, they returned to their own country was but a type of that far more glorious liberation for all who accept Christ as their Savior and Lord. The one crying in the wilderness is John. He introduces us here. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if you're familiar with the other Gospels, and Luke especially tells us that John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they were barren and they were past the age of having kids, and Zechariah goes in to serve before the Lord. It was his allotment as a priest, and it's when the angel comes to him and says, you're going to have a child, your wife's going to bear a child, and says, he, he's gonna, this is going to be Elijah. It's, it, it's this prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah and prepare the way. And so he tells him, you're going to name him John. This is what your son's going to do. And that, and that Elizabeth is cousins with Mary or once removed, something like that. They're family. And that you remember when, when Mary is pregnant with Jesus and she goes to see Elizabeth. Remember what Elizabeth says? Like, the baby in my womb. Do you remember? Leaps for joy. Like, like that, that John was said by the angel. The angel told his dad, like, John's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, like, while he's in your womb, like this awesome, awesome truth that like he's somehow set apart and saved from conception. And so now he's come on the scene and he he goes out as an adult. Some point in his life, he goes out into the wilderness and he's just living in the wilderness, in the desert. He's attracted disciples to himself and he's got a simple message. The king's coming. Prepare the way. The king's coming. Repent. Repent, And so it's this picture of he's calling Israel to come out to the wilderness in repentance. And for the Jews, this would have been a clear picture. Like, he's saying, man, come out of, of your home, come out of the promised land, back to the wilderness. Just like you were in the Exodus. For the Jews, the wilderness is this idea of, yeah, like, of trials and temptations and wondering and ultimately for them as a nation like their failure their rebellion their 
their disobedience, their lack of faith. And John's message to them is, that's where you're really at. Like you're living in the promised land, but really the condition of your soul is that of the wilderness. And he's got this intense message of repent. Like don't hold on to that. Don't hold on to that sin. Your king's coming and you need to prepare the way. That picture from leaving the Babylonian captivity is the idea of, yeah, like prepare the way of the king. Like make, make the road straight. Like get, get all the loose rocks out of the road. Make it clean and straight and clear. And what John's saying is, we, in order to receive the Messiah, to receive the Christ, like that needs to be the condition of your heart. So repent, repent. It says that he's in the wilderness. And I think this is where sometimes we maybe get more of a caricature view of John the Baptist because it says he's wearing this row made of camel's hair and he's eating locusts and, and honey. And it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I do think that's, wild and I, I wouldn't want to sign up for it but it on one hand it's interesting because uh in Leviticus God actually tells the Jews they can eat locusts like it's a it's a supper option and he even tells them how to do it like if you want to roast them put them in some bread eat it up kind of like a locust gyro and I think you know to me you know want to get make sure you get the wings off get the legs out of there some people say euro I say gyro I don't know but but, I, but this is another place where I had to stop and think, again, who am I to judge? Because you know what I do like to eat? I, I, I'm not down with locusts. Like, I'm not, like, walking outside at certain times of year and trying to catch locusts. But you know what I do like to eat? I, I do like to eat ribeye. That is my favorite. Shrimp. I'm down with shrimp. You know what that's not? Kosher. Literally, it's not kosher. They're not, Jews weren't allowed to eat that. Like, and I think, okay, if I were to call out John on the locust, he'd be like, oh, for real? Do you know what that eats? You know where that lives? You know, you know what your food has as food? That's not a vein. Like, <laughs> so to each his own when it comes to taste, right? Like, so it's not that he's just like this crazy out of his mind guy. Like, the picture with him is, Everything about his food and his diet and where he lived was to be a beacon, like a, a flashing light over John saying, this is the one who was promised to come. This is the forerunner for the Messiah. This is a, the guy who's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Like Elijah wore a robe made of camel's hair. Like that's how... The, that prophet was identified and to live in the wilderness away from the trappings. And what Jesus even said to John was, hey, y'all didn't go out to the wilderness to see somebody dressed in really nice clothes. He says, because people in really, that wear nice clothes, they're in king's palaces. And what he's referring to is, man, there was all these false prophets in Israel who connected themselves with kings who didn't want to follow the Lord. And so they, they would tell them what they wanted to hear and they'd give the prophecies that they thought would advance themselves and it got them into the king's court where they lived a comfortable life. And he's saying, that's not John. 
That's not John. John chose to be faithful and poor and in discomfort over being comfortable and rich. And he said, man, John comes and he, he's so single-minded in his devotion and his message is clear and he, come what may, whatever consequences, and it did. It ends up costing him his life. He goes out to the wilderness and he's summoning the Jews out. William Lane says this in his commentary. The summons to be baptized in the Jordan means that Israel must once more come to the wilderness. As Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea, the nation is exhorted again to exercise separation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. The willingness to return to the wilderness signifies the acknowledgement of Israel's history as one of disobedience and rebellion, a desire to begin once more. Let's go back to the wilderness before we ever came into the land and start all over again. And here's what's beautiful is people come out. It says people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, they come out in droves. Thousands upon thousands come out and they repent. And this is what John's repentance was. This is what his baptism was all about, to be a picture of, I want to let go. I don't want to hoard my sin. I don't want to hold on to the things that are keeping me from the Lord. I want to let go of those things. I want to be cleansed. I want to be prepared so that when the Lord comes, I recognize him, I see him, and I submit to him. And people come out and they're being baptized. That's crazy because for them, baptism was not a common thing at all. For them, there, there was the only baptism they knew, and it probably did not happen often at all, was if a Gentile was going to become a Jew, they would baptize them. They would immerse them in water. And what they're, what they're saying is, yeah, the state of my soul is I'm like a Gentile. I'm like somebody who doesn't even know God. And they're coming out and confessing that and repenting to prepare their hearts to receive Christ. As long as we hold on to and hoard sin, the illusion of our autonomy, and I, I don't know, sometimes it's just it's, it's talking to believers. Because obviously there's a clear application for those who don't know Christ. But I think, man, as a believer, sometimes, and this is, this is where I found myself recently, where, man, things are going good, ministry's good, family's good. I like my family. I love my ministry. love this church. And things are going good, but I just, like, I knew, man, I'm, grown apathetic in my pursuit of the Lord. I was lethargic in desiring time with Jesus. And that builds. And I think for sometimes it's, it's, it's apathy. Sometimes maybe it's the abuse of a f what would be called a freedom in Christ. Maybe it is an addiction. Maybe it is just outright sin. You could go down a list. 
I think, man, as long as I hold on to that, even as a believer, man, and I, and I choke out, like, <laughs> the room that is meant for Jesus, the, the intimacy that the Lord wants me to have with him, the, what John did such an awesome job describing in our time of communion, like, the, the intimacy and fellowship that we're made for. I, I, I want to hear that as I hear John the Baptist saying, repent. I don't want to just jump to, yes, lost people repent. And I wanted to start here. And I, I know for me personally, is, and it wasn't necessarily even in connection with this study, but as I was coming out of that, like as I realized that I was even in that state where my heart was hard and I wasn't as close to the Lord as I thought and I was living off of like, successful ministry and family going well and nothing wrong with my life and then realizing man, I'm not as close to Jesus as I need to be and I've allowed other things to come in and I'm hoarding and I'm holding on to things that I need to get out it's just clutter and if I'm not careful it'll build and it'll build and it'll build until it crushes me and just to be able to repent just to be able to confess that to the Lord and then know and to hear the truth like yeah what does Jesus do? He cleanses, he forgives, he heals, he restores. I mean, in that silly, well, not silly, it's a sad illustration, but picture of like, yeah, like to come in and if, what if you could have removed all that junk and just got it out of there, start over? What if you could bring in somebody who's skilled to reinforce the floor and what's, what's out of joint to be put back in joint? And I think, man, that is, that is the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the Lord that when we repent he stands ready and willing because here's the deal Jesus meets us in the wilderness isn't that good he meets us in the wilderness <laughs> he comes into the wilderness and the, these prophecies blow me away because if you and don't have the time but if I encourage you to go and read the fuller context uh, if you really want to treat, read all of Isaiah and, and you see like, yeah, this, it keeps coming back. Like the Lord's coming. He's bringing his salvation. Redemption's coming. He's going he's gonna to flex his strong arm of salvation and rescue his people. But it's also like these prophecies are mingled with, yeah, he's coming to bring salvation. But what else does he always bring? Judgment. And it's these intense pictures of God's judgment on his people. And when you just read through, like, depending on what verse you're in, you're going, oh, he's saving everyone. And the next verse you're thinking, oh, no, he's judging everyone. And both are true. Judgment, God pours out judgment and he pours out grace. He does both. And so these pictures, like, when you hear these quotations read, like, in my mind, I get this picture of, like, all of redemptive history, all the Old Testament was building to this moment, and finally, like, the forerunner, like, in the spirit and the power and the intensity of Elijah, John comes, and he's saying, Yahweh's coming, and that should be mingled with, like, I'm excited, and that's my only hope, but there should also be a fear because God judges sin, and I, I picture in my mind this scene of like Mount Sinai like in, the, in the distance with thunder and lightning and dark clouds, and, and everything is rumbling and shaking, and he's saying, the king's coming, the Messiah's coming, and you hear the lion roar in the distance, and, and you think, okay, here he comes. He's about to turn the corner, and then all of a sudden, what turns the corner, what walks into view is the Lamb of God. That's what John said, right? Behold, 
the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And all the power, all the holiness, and all the justice is still there and present, but he comes in the meekness of the person of Jesus. That he is the Son of God. And he comes in absolute humility to seek and to save the lost. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John, isn't it crazy? He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord, repent, and people are coming and they're repenting and they're being baptized and they don't even realize the king of kings, Yahweh in the flesh, the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power has just walked among them. Now, while the humility of Christ, the humility of God on display. Verse eight. No, verse seven. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was so clear throughout his ministry, even when he was asked directly, they're like, man, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he's like, man, I'm not, I'm not. He's like, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare for the Messiah coming. And he, and he, he said, he said, man, the one who's coming after me, he's so much greater than me. He says, he's superior to me. He says, I'm not even worthy to do like the lowest possible way to serve somebody, like a role reserved for a servant or a slave to take off somebody's sandal and wash their feet. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worthy to do that. He's so much more superior because of who he is. This is God. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of the glory of God come in human flesh. I think this is, this is God's glory on display, which is a hard concept to grasp, the glory of God. I think, you know, if, if God were selfish, if God were selfish, because I, I don't know if I'm making any sense have I made any sense since I talked about the lady in the house? I hope so. We're, I'm not going to back up. But if, it just sometimes when I say out loud, God is humble, it's so refreshing and like sobering to me because a lot of times I don't think of him that way. I think that we need to be humble because, and, and that makes sense because we're sinful and we're us. I don't know if you know me, but I do. I should be humble like when I take stock. So, but when I think of God and infinite power and knowledge and wisdom and he alone is good and we don't think rightly about him because we're so twisted and perverted and jacked up by sin, like he's glorious, he's awesome, he's holy, but he's humble. And he puts that on display here because if God were selfish, he would keep his glory to himself. He's perfect. Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect fellowship, perfect unity, love, peace, joy. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He made us so that we could experience the beauty 
the majesty of his glory. Would we rebel? Yeah. Would it mean that his justice against sin would also have to be put on display? Yes. And God's love and his grace and his mercy, his plan was to be able to redeem us, to save us out of our sin so that we could understand just how great he is. Because he wants to share with us his glory, his holiness, his goodness, his majesty, his power, his wisdom, his steadfast love, which is <laughs> steadfast love which is better than life. He's humble. So he comes in the person of Jesus. And he walks down to the edge of the Jordan, and John sees him, and John's mind is metaphorically blown, right? Like sees him and he knows this is the Lamb of God. Again, and y'all know the Jews, they think he's coming, he's gonna be the conquering king. They wanted the thunderbolts. They wanted they wanted the lightning. They wanted the ground shaking, roaring lion to come and devour Rome and free them. And that's not the Messiah they got, at least initially. But I think there's an important point there for all of us, right? Like, we, we sometimes want a version of Jesus that takes care of everything out there. And what John's saying is, oh, no, no, no. The only Jesus, the real Jesus, he's first going to take care of what's in here. He starts, he starts with you. He starts with your soul. He starts with telling you, don't hoard your sin. Repent. Why? Why let go of it? to make room for Jesus. There is no <laughs> there is no coming to Jesus to make him Lord, for him to be your king without him first being your savior. And he, he will not save until you first see that you need to be saved. Until we first see that oh, I, I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath. I don't deserve to bask in his glory for all of eternity. I deserve to experience hell forever because of my sin against him. But it's when we see that, that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. Repentance is me seeing God for who he is in his holiness and his justice and his beauty and his power and being convicted and realizing, I, yeah, I now change my mind about me. I'm not good. I thought I was good. I'm not. I thought I was better than that guy. I'm not. Dang it. <laughs> Sinful. But that moment right there, if I'll repent and get right there, well, then I can see Jesus for who he really is. He's not come to save us from a political hell. He's not come to save us from a national crisis. He's not come to save me from a bad marriage and all the other things that I would prioritize over and against. He came first and foremost to save me from me, from my sin, from his judgment. And then what I'll find as he comes in and he cleanses my heart and he repairs everything and I have fellowship with him, well, then he gives meaning and purpose 
to everything else in my life and everything else I experience. John says, man, he's so much better than us, so much better than me. He says his baptism is better. Better. He comes to baptize. He says, I'm baptizing you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of our regeneration, purification, redemption. Titus 3, 4 talks about it this way. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. <laughs> he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's awesome. So we'll, we'll pause there in the narrative. The Lamb of God walking up to the edge of the Jordan. That's where we'll pick up next week. But the application's clear, right? For all of us. As a believer, you know, what am I hoarding? What am I holding on to? What's keeping me from that intimate fellowship with my Lord, with my Savior? Let go. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, <laughs> if you're visiting, I do this just to be dramatic. I've, I've never actually got choked up a day in my life. <laughs> if you're not a believer, our prayer for you is that you'd hear John's message and you know that he came not just to preach to those men and those women, but to preach to us. Prepare your heart. Repent. Receive the one. Receive the God who came to save you, who humbled himself, became a human being so that he could ultimately go to the cross, die in your place. Rise again so that you could experience forgiveness, and redemption, purification and wholeness to be in a right relationship with your God. Pray with me. Lord, I love you and thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to save us. Thank you that we have forgiveness in you. I pray, Lord, that in my rambling that you would minister to each one's heart and mind who's here. And I pray that you would, that you would, in your kindness, lead us to repentance. And Lord Jesus, if there's folks here that don't know you, I pray that you would author and perfect their faith, that you'd open the eyes of the blind, that you'd quicken the souls of the dead to, to see you, to respond to you, to hear your voice and rise up. And I pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful, that we, would, that we would proclaim the same message that John proclaimed, that we would find relationships and opportunities to, to call people to repentance. Lord, for your glory, we love you. We need you. I pray that you receive the worship that you alone are worthy of.